BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Donald Trump starts his day complaining about the investigations coming his way, and he went to the National Prayer Breakfast and made a startling revelation to all of us. Here he is. Since the founding of our nation, Many of our greatest strides from gaining our independence to abolition of civil rights to extending the vote for women have been led by people of faith and started in prayer. Yeah, right. Well, also people of color, but, you know, Donald Trump would never mention that. But the abolition of civil rights, that's very interesting. People of faith have led the abolition. So, well, you know, I suppose you could say it's kind of snarky. Uh, you know, obviously he misread his prompter. But there are larger fish to fry in the rants of Donald Trump. He started out with a tweet. This is the guy who spends, you know, according to this recent leak, 60% of his time sitting in his bedroom in his pajamas eating fast food and drinking Diet Coke and watching Fox News and tweeting. 60% of his time, that's your president. And the remaining 40% of his time is spent down in his office eating fast food, drinking Diet Coke and talking to people who are on television on Fox News. But this tweet that, oh, the Republicans never did this to Obama, it never happened before. He's talking about the investigations that were kicked off by Democrats in the House of Representatives. Actually, you know, those of us who were, you know, paying attention remember quite well for three years, year after year after year, the Republicans kept holding hearings in Washington, D.C. and the House of Representatives on, oh, what was their name? Lois somebody? Lois Lesser? Lois? In any case, there was this poor woman who worked at the IRS who they said, you're not letting conservative groups have their nonprofit status. That's because you hate conservative groups. Well, you know, no, actually, you know, they were holding up the applications of liberal groups, too. If they looked like they weren't actually doing nonprofit stuff, but instead were doing political stuff, they were entitled to nonprofit status. And Lois Lerner, I think was her name, as I recall. But anyhow, he's like, you know, literally they destroyed her career. Three years of investigations into the IRS. Planned Parenthood, they had this faked video by a Republican operative 
and they spent a year investigating Planned Parenthood. Didn't find anything. Didn't find anything at the IRS. Then they investigated the Planned Parenthood again in the following year. And then they investigated Benghazi. A different committee investigated Benghazi. And then another committee investigated Benghazi. And then they got the definitive answer, so they investigated Benghazi two more times. Remember the congressman who said, you know, we're going to win the election, the 2016 election, because of Benghazi? That's going to take down Hillary Clinton? And then, you know, Michelle Bachman going off on all these crazed right-wing conspiracy theories. And then, you know, don't even get me started on the investigations into Hillary Clinton's emails. This is after George W. Bush lost 5 million emails. Karl Rove lost millions of emails. You know, Dick Cheney had millions of emails vanish. But no, we got to find out what happened to Hillary's emails. And they actually found her emails and they went through them all. There was no there there. But I think the important thing that I wanted to talk about this morning is socialism. Steve Mnuchin tweeted, we're not going back to socialism. We don't believe in a centralized planned economy where the government puts restraints on billionaire behavior. The billionaire behavior I've inserted. But, you know, the reality is that Americans want more socialism. They want America to be more like those countries that have democratic socialism, like the countries of Europe and Central America. Uh, they, you know, Costa Rica, free college, free health care. Costa Rica. Why can't we do that? Oh, we're not smart enough. We're not rich enough. We've got to give tax cuts to the billionaires. We can't have this. The billionaires have to have more tax cuts, don't you know? Reagan, St. Reagan told us this. No, Americans want more socialism. They want Social Security expanded and strengthened, and they want the cap lifted so it's not just people making under 120000 bucks a year who are paying for Social Security. They would like the billionaires to pay for Social Security, too. Americans would like a national health care system. It has overwhelming support from both Democrats and Republicans, and certainly among independents that heals people instead of just making people like Stephen J. Hemsley a billionaire over at United Healthcare. They want banks that support local communities rather than ripping people off. Did you notice one of the things that the uh, Consumer Finance Protection Bureau here under Mick Mulvaney wants to do is they're going to do away with a rule that was put into place during the Obama administration that says that if you're a payday lender, if you're going to charge somebody 400% interest, and these guys prey on soldiers and low-income people. Soldiers are low-income people in many cases. And that's who they prey on. And the law says that if you're going to write a loan, one of these uh, high-interest payday loans, before you write that loan, you have to know that this person can pay you back. Because if they can't pay you back, the interest is going to start piling up, and they're going to end up, you know, on a $200 loan, they're going to end up $10,000 in debt because of the interest payments. And Mick Mulvaney and the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau say, yeah, we don't need that rule. We're going to deregulate the payday lenders, right? No, Americans would like a little more socialism. They'd like the banks to be regulated. They'd like to know that they're not going to get ripped off when they walk into a lending institution. Americans would like their food and water to be safe. I mean, how many of us have had food poisoning in the last couple of months? It's become so common in American restaurants, people don't even comment on it anymore. Those bacteria literally did not exist in the 1950s and 60s. I don't remember throughout my childhood, you know, up until I was well into my teenage years, I literally do not remember one instance of getting food poisoning. The E. coli H157, the one that takes down people's kidneys, that kills people, 
or leaves people with dialysis for the rest of their lives. We just had an outbreak of it a while ago with the romaine lettuce. That bacteria literally did not exist before 1980. These bacteria are the result of factory farming, of these insane practices and policies that we're pursuing to produce enough you know, meat to give everybody all they want, and which is killing our population. It's increasing obesity and high blood pressure and all kinds of things. Anyhow, Americans would like their food and their water to be safe, Flint, Michigan. We would like some socialism, please. We would like a mass transportation system that actually works. We'd like to be able to get around our cities at a low cost without having to drive cars. Nobody wants to sit in traffic for hours. We'd like a little socialism. We'd like college educations to be free. A little socialism there, please. You know, when my dad went to college and Louise's dad went to college on the GI Bill back in the 1940s and early 1950s, the cost that their generation of taxpayers paid to send them to college was returned sevenfold by the additional taxes that they paid as a consequence of the increased income they had as a result of a college education. We know that this is an enormous investment. We'd like a little more socialism, please. Invest in our young people. And let's wipe out the debt. It's only a trillion dollars. It would cost a trillion dollars, or maybe it's a trillion and a half now, trillion and a half dollars to wipe out all the college debt in America. Donald Trump gave billionaires a trillion and a half dollars last year. He, on the State of the Union, he said we spent $6 trillion fighting stupid wars in Iraq that George W. Bush lied us into. We can't take a trillion and a half dollars and wipe out student debt so that young people can buy a house, they can get married, they can start families, they can start a business. They don't have to be a slave to a dead-end job. They don't have to, you know, desperately, you know, fear the economic future if they're going to be stuck as a barista at Starbucks at $10.50 an hour for the rest of their lives or whatever they're paying. And we'd like to know that our air transportation system is safe and we would like our airlines to once again actually compete with each other on price, which means breaking up these giant airline oligopolies, these giant semi-monopolies. But Trump and Mnuchin, you know, the billionaire and his multimillionaire toady, they want none of that. They want what David Koch ran for president on in 1980, which is, I mean, you know, just consider this. These, this is from the 1980 Libertarian Platform, the party platform of the Libertarian Party that David Koch ran for vice president on in 1980. This guy is the guy, well, his brother in large part, but these two brothers are the guys who have funded the Republican Party for the last 30 years in a really big way. And the entire conservative movement, from the Heritage Foundation, to the Cato Institute, to ALEC, to Republicans at the state level, at the county level, at the federal level. Most of the Republican Party, in some way, knows that if they cross the Koch brothers, they're screwed. That's why they're all denying climate change, because the Koch brothers inherited, you know, a fossil fuel fortune. So here's what, you know, when David Koch ran for president, the repeal of the federal campaign finance laws, abolition of Medicare and Medicaid, repeal of Social Security. Yes, in fact, they called it the bankrupt Social Security system when they called for the repeal of it. I mean, it, it, it is really, truly pretty breathtaking what these guys were calling for. Repeal of all taxation, repeal of minimum wage laws, 
end of government ownership, operation, regulation, and subsidy of schools and colleges. Abolition of the Environmental Protection Agency. Abolition of the Food and Drug Administration. End of all tax-supported services for children. We oppose all government welfare relief projects and aid to the poor programs. Repeal the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Repeal the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Repeal all state usury laws that protect you from banks ripping you off. That's what Trump and Mnuchin want. What do you want? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Tom Harbin here with you. There's a couple of things that I wanted to just lay on the table and have a conversation with you about. I wanted to get into into monopolies and antitrust law and all this sort of stuff. How this uh, the sixth largest bank in America is about to be created by the merger of two other banks, and this whole thing of monopoly and antitrust law and how the antitrust laws were either changed or the enforcement of them was changed in the 1980s and the influences behind that. On the line with us is Professor Barack Orbach. He is a professor of law at the University of Arizona, the James E. Rogers College of Law, one of the nation's most well-known authorities on antitrust law. Orbach, O-R-B-A-C-H dot org is his website. You can tweet him at Barack, B-A-R-A-K, Orbach, O-R-B-A-C-H. Dr. Orbach, welcome to the program. Thank you much for having me on, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I assume, I hope I'm pronouncing your names correctly and everything? Yes. Okay, great. Um, I, I read an article that you wrote some years ago that just, it was so informative and it was so astonishing to me about how Robert Bork changed not just American antitrust law, I would argue that he changed the entire nature of this country. Um, you know, it's, it's so hard now for entrepreneurs, for example, to start new businesses, to, to, to find a foothold because of these, these giant uh, corporations. And uh, I think most Americans, when they hear the name Robert Bork, they think, oh, wasn't that, guy, that kind of crazy right-wing guy that Ronald Reagan wanted to put on the Supreme Court? You know, he had a funny beard, and, and, he, and he couldn't quite pull it off, and he just kind of faded into obscurity. And, and Bork wrote a bunch of rants about, you know, the, the, the threat of homosexuals and, and uh, you know, how women getting abortions was going to destroy America and stuff. And I don't think anybody realizes who he really was or what he did. Um, so, uh, A, in my setup here, did I, did I go off on any weird tangents or, or point anything out that was not part of the story? And B, if not, then can you please tell us 
And, and by the way, this is our Conversations with Great Minds segment. We're going to have this conversation for the half hour. Can you please tell us who Robert Bork was and how he influenced our country? Well, let me just say that everything is a matter of perspective. So the way you describe him is probably the way most liberals would they describe him, but certainly not the way conservatives would think about him. They actually admire him. I think that everyone would agree that during the nomination he had a funny beard, but otherwise conservatives and liberals are likely to have a strong disagreement over him. And what is particularly important for the purpose of antitrust law is that the majority of the judge, justices, and including the liberals, think highly of his writing in antitrust. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, he was a very smart but, man, uh, a, a, a very articulate uh, uh, writer and, and I, jurist. Yeah. I, I think that it is true that everyone could agree that he was a very smart man, and everyone could agree that he was an excellent writer. Uh, many people probably would not agree with what he wrote about antitrust. And, and, and there's the main thing to say about it. One thing is that most of his ideas were not entirely original. But rather, there were ideas that were up in the air uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. The thing for which he is credited the most, that actually was innovative and not in any significant or not in any positive way, was that he introduced the concept of consumer welfare, which is the stated or the stated goal of uh, U.S. antitrust laws, which, the, which for us or for most people, the, the phrase consumer welfare may mean many things. Uh, what may be good for consumers, but for Robert Bork, it meant one of two things, either low prices or high quantity, which is not the way we would think about it or most people would think about it. So, for example, low prices and many cigarettes would be consumer welfare under his definition. Uh, and the, many, and a lot of media, but low-quality media, would also be fine from his perspective. Uh, so it is a very different perspective, and this is something that he created and the Supreme Court adopted. So that's probably the most significant thing. So can I, can I, can I try to re- sure. rephrase that in a way that, that, uh, uh, that makes sense to me? Um, it used to be, I mean, you go back to the, the beginning of the 20th century, that, uh, or really the late 19th century. The Sherman Act was passed, as I recall, in 1890. Um, that the idea of antitrust was to uh, prevent companies from getting so large or a group of companies from conspiring in a way that they were so large that they could control markets, that it was anti-competitive, that uh, that that would block out competitors, that would prevent uh, smaller companies from getting into the business. Um, There was collusion issues. John D. Rockefeller famously cut deals with the railroads where they charged him a lower price than they did for his competitors to to transport his oil and his kerosene. And, you know, some of these, you could say those were competitive. Some of them were just, you know, basically lockouts. And so most of us understood antitrust law as, you know, restraining this, you know, big fish eats the little fish to the point that there's no more little fish thing in the marketplace. And Bork said, let's flip that upside down on its head. Really, the purpose of antitrust law is not to regulate the behavior of giant corporations. It's to make sure that consumers, that we the people, always can get the lowest price uh, or, the, or the best quality at the lowest price. Do I have that right? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. So that, that was his focus. He said, you know, it doesn't matter how many companies we have in a market, whether they're large or small, and probably large companies are more efficient than small ones. And generally, that's correct. 
So if if everything that everybody buys in America comes from two companies, Walmart and Amazon, whether you want to go out and get it or have it delivered to your home, if we ended up with just two retail companies in America, um, that would be fine with Robert Bork as long as they could price as low. Yes. Uh, yes, but because you know, for him there was kind of a general big picture. There were no details. Yeah. That well, if we have Amazon that we all we all use it and buy products for low prices, that's fantastic. But there are things that they cannot work that well. For example, there will be, we may have less innovation because there's one company that dominates the market, or we will not have certain products that otherwise we would have had. So it is quite difficult actually to balance. The difference, the balance, the desire to have many products for low prices, and yet to have innovation and new products on the market. So, so you would think, no, looking yeah. at this, that you know, when Bork comes along and says, you know, if everybody in America has to buy everything from one company, uh, you know, uh, Walmart, that's just fine as long as they keep prices low. People would say, wait a minute, you're going to destroy innovation when you do this. You're going to uh, ultimately put them, you, you know, they're, 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 you're, you're strengthening their grip around the necks of all of us. And his response to that was what? His response to that would be, well, if people want innovation, that company would be innovative. That's how he believed. Uh-huh. So, Does, is there evidence premise, that he was right? You no, know, yes, there's an evidence that he wasn't right. Uh-huh. Uh, there's no evidence. You know, reality is not black or white. So it's not that if we have only small companies in the economy, we'll have plenty of innovation. Size is valuable for innovation. Mm-hmm. But it is probably true that if we have one company, we'll have less innovation than otherwise. So the truth is somewhere in between. Okay. And the desire to have to protect small companies is probably not economically efficient, but the belief that with no competition, we still have innovation and the economy will work well is quite naive as well. So in, in the early 1980s, when, when Reagan came into office, the prevalent idea about antitrust, I mean, uh, AT&T had just been broken up. Uh, I think that was initiated under the Nixon administration and wrapped up during the Carter administration, as I recall. And, um, you know, there was this broad consensus that that, that produced much more innovation. It, it, it you know, broke open the, the, the market for cell phones and Internet and all kinds of cool stuff came out of that. And then uh, Reagan came along and said, no, I like Robert Bork's idea. Uh, you know, we're not going to resist the Walmartization of America. And that's just at the retail level, at the, at the, at the industrial level, at the manufacturing level. He says, you know, it's all good. And that kicked off this explosion of mergers and acquisitions. Am I remembering my history right? Yes, I think that the way we describe it is probably the way most people would describe it. But I think that you give too much credit for uh, Ronald Reagan. I don't know whether he actually read Robert Bork or how much he knew about what Robert Bork was thinking, but what we can know, we can know in certainty is that he thought that antitrust was too much interference in the market, and he appointed to the agencies people who were anti-enforcement or thought that antitrust should not be that aggressive. The most significant power, which tends to be overlooked, is actually the composition of the Supreme Court, that since the mid-70s, the majority of the Supreme Court have been relatively conservative, if not the majority were conservative, and they tend to believe that Robert Bork was a, a great antitrust thinker. Hmm. And that's probably true for some of the liberal justices on the Supreme Court today. So I would actually give much more credit or not credit, much of the blame is on the Supreme Court than on the administrations. Because so they, were, they were no longer enforcing laws about antitrust? There are two separate things about enforcement. 
Enforcement in antitrust can be public enforcement, mm-hmm. which is done by the antitrust division of the Department of Justice or the FTC. But the majority of enforcement of antitrust is, is consists of private actions. That is, that companies or consumer groups sue companies that allegedly violate the antitrust laws. Oh, so it happens in the courts rather than the rather than the regulatory agencies. Exactly. And the interpretation of of, of the trust laws is a overlook over over under the overview of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court interprets the antitrust laws. And what we have seen since 1977, this is probably the uh, turning point, is that the Supreme Court has moving away toward a more and more permissible policies and has developing a hostility toward antitrust enforcement. So much of that is about the Supreme Court, less than Ronald, less than Ronald Reagan and other conservative uh, presidents. Very interesting. The credit, that the credit that they may deserve is appointing justices. And, and Reagan appointed some justices who were relatively moderate. So Scalia was the most radical one. But uh, Santo de O'Connor or Sauter, or, sorry, Santo de O'Connor or Kennedy were not that radical as mm-hmm. far as antitrust go or goes or other things. Fascinating. So I, w- I want to continue this conversation. We're talking with Professor Barack Orbach. Uh, he's a professor of law at the University of Arizona, the James E. Rogers College of Law, one of the nation's most well-known authorities on antitrust law. This has uh, these changes in the 1970s and the 1980s have completely changed the nature of business, the the nature of our cities, our towns, all across this country. And and uh, I'm just fascinated to learn how it happened. You can tweet him at Barack Orbach. Professor Orbach, 1976 was the year that the Supreme Court, now they had Lewis Powell on the bench, was the year that the Supreme Court in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision ruled that essentially if a billionaire or a corporation, you know, that kind of came later, I guess, in First National Bank versus Bilotti, but, you know, wanted to own a politician or wanted to heavily influence an election, that was First Amendment free speech and then kind of set up Citizens United. Um, that was a major turning point uh, in, in this country, and it seems like 77, they, the Supreme Court started defending companies against antitrust laws. Uh, it, it seems to me that those two decisions are kind of two sides of the same thing. Let's just let the giant ones, let's just let the billionaires, let's just let the very wealthy uh, run things. Am I, am I off base here? You're absolutely right. No, you're absolutely right. But uh, there are two things that perhaps deserve some kind of attention and more precision. One thing is that uh, since the mid-70s, the Supreme Court has been persistently increased what they call corporate constitutional rights. So corporations uh, receive constitutional rights or protected by constitutional rights that ordinarily we would apply only to human beings, not to corporations. And because corporations have more funds to deliver cases to the Supreme Court, they, they can expand the rights more than individuals. So the, the general trend, as it, is, as it is perceived legally, is the expansion of corporate, corporate rights. And this would be, in the context of mentioned, free speech. It may be in the context of a, a, a political donations. And it may be in the context of a anti poor defendant approach in antitrust. So all these things are absolutely related. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is another force that uh, is important to recognize is that we are in the midst of industrial revolution that began in the 1970s, in uh, mid-1970s. So these two things are related. 
much of the growth of companies is because of dramatic technological change. At the last time we have seen such a fast technological change was at the end of the 19th century when uh, the Sherman Act was enacted. So these are two separate things. Uh, we should definitely uh, be proud of the technological revolution. It, it brings many great things, but we should, not, we should also have some policies that uh, create some checks and balances for uh, these companies because the economy is changing, and that's what we don't have. How, how did we have that in the 60s and we don't have it now? Can you give me an example? Yes. So, for example, so, yes, and the example is actually not as good as you may think. Uh, we did not have a good antitrust policies until the mid-70s because we had a bunch of uh, sentiments that were uh, targeting to protect uh, small companies and, had, and were hostile to large, to large companies. Mm-hmm. But there was, no kind of, there was no criterion of when a large company is large or why do we need to have many small companies or what is small or how many companies uh, does the market need? Do we need to have 100 companies or 12 would be enough? Or there are other issues for, for which we can uh, evaluate competition. So we did not have any systematic uh, system. So most antitrust people would think, would say, you know, antitrust, antitrust law was not great until the 70s, which was quite messy. It is more organized since the 70s, but probably too permissive. That's, that's fascinating. And then, and then the Supreme Court took, a, took an ax to it. I want to get into that. What were those decisions and, and how were they decided? We'll be back in just a moment. Professor Barack Orbach, our Conversations with Great Minds today is with us. Professor of Law at the University of Arizona, the James E. Rogers College of Law, one of the nation's most well-known authorities on antitrust law. Orbach, O-R-B-A-C-H dot org is his website. You can find that article that, that uh, I was talking about, about Robert Bork there. Uh, you can tweet him at Barack Orbach. We'll be right back. Professor Barack Orbach, our conversations with the great minds today, professor of law at the University of Arizona, James E. Rogers College of Law. Uh, His website, Orbach, O-R-B-A-C-H dot org, where you can read, uh, for example, the article I was talking about, Robert Bork. Uh, Professor Orbach, you said that it was in the mid-70s that the Supreme Court basically made a turn and stopped enforcing or supporting the antitrust laws as they had been understood back to the 1880s and, and instead basically adopted Robert Bork's perspective that as long as consumers had access to low-cost stuff, it didn't matter how it got there, essentially. What, what were the, if I'm characterizing this right, or if I'm, if I'm characterizing it wrong, please correct me. Um, but in either case, what were the decisions and what did they say and how did that come about? So most people would agree that 19, the uh, GPE Sylvania in 1977 was the turning point of antitrust. GE and Sylvania? G- GTE Sylvania. Oh, GTE Sylvania, right. Okay, that was one company. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was a one company, and in that case, what the Supreme Court held is it created a clear distinction between vertical agreement, which are agreements along the production and distribution chain, for example, between manufacturer and distributor, between distributor and retailer, and horizontal agreement, which are agreement among competitors. And the Supreme Court said that vertical agreements are generally lawful, or it would be what created difficulties to prove their that they violate antitrust laws, and horizontal agreements are suspicious. The other thing that GT Savannah did was determining that the economics is the key methodology to analyze antitrust laws and not other values. So, so this is one. 
Go ahead. So, so adding value is not a, a big deal, and it's okay if if a manufacturer and a distributor collude essentially, but it's not okay. Which is, in my recollection, is what Rockefeller was all about. But it's not okay if a company colludes with a conspira- conspires with a uh, a competitor. No, it is absolutely wrong to collude with your competitor. So, right. horizontal agreement among competitors are the big no-no, supposedly. Mm-hmm. But agreements, uh, vertical agreements between manufacturers and distributors, between manufacturers and retailers, are generally legal. Yeah. So that's, we, where, that's where we are now. Professor, we just have 30 seconds, so we're going to hit a hard break at the end of this interview. Is there any movement to roll back Robert Bork's worldview? Yes, absolutely. So the progressive movement that has been uh, gaining steam since the Great Recession has very strong feelings about the large companies and technological companies. And they try to suggest that what they do is replicates what happened at the end of the 19th, at the end of the 19th century. And they're partially correct and partially wrong. They're as radical as Robert Bork, but in an opposite direction. Fascinating stuff. Professor Barack Obrock, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate the the enlightenment on these issues. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, you can find his website is Orbach, O-R-B-A-C-H dot org. You can tweet him at Barack, B-A-R-A-K, Orbach. Uh, thank you so much again, Professor Orbach. Don't you just love it when something that's already amazing gets better? Well, that's the case with the X chair. The makers have taken what is arguably the most comfortable and supportive office chair in the world and made it even better by introducing wider seats in the X3 and X4 models of the X-Chair. That means extra support for those of us with wider bases. The good people at X-Chair are constantly innovating to help improve your working comfort and productivity. And now you can finance the purchase of your X-Chair for as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world. Today's report brought to you by Ellen Ratner's little charity, GoatsfortheOldGoat.com, and loving what you do, Ellen's new book. Uh, on the line with us is the author of Sideswiped, Bob Nay, former congressman from Ohio. Hey, congressman. Hi, Tom. How are you? I am great, but I'll get better. What's going on in the world? Oh, I have a question hey. for you. You're a member of Congress. Oh, sure. You would know the answer to this. I was uh, wondering about this out loud on the air. Whitaker, the acting attorney general, says that he will refuse to come to Congress if they subpoena him. But if they don't subpoena him, he would be glad to come and testify. Uh, if, if What's the difference? If, if somebody is called before a congressional testima- a committee uh, and they show up voluntarily, is there a lower standard uh, of of uh, transparency or openness or answering questionness or whatever that they that they are held to than if they come under a subpoena is that why he's objecting or is this just about saving face it's saving face because if you appear at a, at a committee and you put your hand you know on on the oath you take the oath uh whether you're subpoenaed or you're not you're under the same rules now you're either going to talk or you're going to do the fifth if you show up 
and I read this story, Tom, and I don't understand his motives except vanity or control, because he say, okay, I'm going to show up, but he can't show up and then say, well, I'm not going to swear to anything. Mm-hmm. So the subpoena was now the subpoena was in their pocket, though, as I call it, because look. He might say, yes, I'll show up, and then he doesn't, and then they have to go through the process. So that's sort of something in their pocket. But I read that story. It doesn't make a difference. He's either going to be there or not. Either way, whether he is forced there or voluntarily, he has to take an oath. And he can't, be, and he can't uh, refuse to answer questions, or can he? I mean, if he wants to invoke oh, yes. it. Either way, yes, he could invoke the fifth. Right. Yes, he could. Um, now, if he And does, a subpoena doesn't change that. Yeah, that's right. Because whether whether he is subpoenaed, if he physically goes into that room, as I as I remember it, whether he's subpoenaed or not, he can say I'm going to take the fifth, or he, he can speak either way. Right. So I I didn't I didn't understand that story unless it's like, well, okay, I'm going to show up, but you're not going to subpoena me. Right. You know? Yeah, it, 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 I, I, he said, I, the comment he made is, I will not uh, engage in, uh, in political theater. And right. uh, so basically he's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's weird. It's like, you know, I broke up with you. No, I broke up with you first. It's that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's bizarre. Well, I saw that story and I thought, okay, what's, what's he saying? I'll show up, don't subpoena me. Well, you know, what's the difference? Yeah. Either way, he just doesn't. And he hasn't responded to any of the questions, any of the written questions from the Democrats. They they sent him their questions. They said, let us know. Right. They said, are you going to invoke executive privilege? Right. He has refused to respond to anything they've said, which is why right. they went to the Suprema. Anyhow, what else sure. is going on in the world today, Bob? And that'll be on Friday, but sure they did that. And, and of course, then there's the uh, Chairman Schiff in the Intel Committee. That's heating up with the president saying, well, you didn't do this to President Obama. Well, in fact, they did. All, pre- well, they did, but President Obama didn't run a business with his children in the White House. Right. right. Bit of a difference. He yeah. didn't have a uh, Obama Enterprises with, you know, his his daughters, well, they were younger, but if they had been older, his daughters running the business or a son-in-law. But they spent They're, two years investigating whether the IRS was denying application, yeah. nonprofit yeah. applications to conservatives. Right. They spent three years investigating right. Benghazi. They didn't indict uh-huh. or, or convict anybody. And, and, you know, I mean, we've already got, what, 30-some-odd uh, indictments and, and uh, over a dozen convictions in the Mueller case? Right. So, anyhow. But this is also apples and oranges, too, because this is a whole different ball game, which we, in my uh, research of it anyway, we have not seen the likes of this, because we have never had a, a sitting president with an acting active business and people running that business who happen to also be employees of the White House. You know, had had he not brought family members or business members, forget just the family, business members into active positions in the White House, this would be a different world for President Trump right now. Interesting. What else is up? Different world. Yeah. So that's, um, well, have you uh, looked at the bank merger of the two banks? I read about it this morning in the New York Times. I, I, you know, it's, they're going to become the sixth largest bank in America now. Right, right. And it would be the sixth largest, and everybody's sort of raving about it. It's got to go through the regulatory process. But, you know, when I read the story, I just thought of, okay, the, the, uh, another one that's too big to, to fail, you know, yep. and they, they don't go after them. And, but uh, they bragged about the amount they're coming. I think sixty-six billion are bringing into the merger. So I did yep. want to mention that. Yeah, and the company putting uh, the merger together is going to make a million, a billion bucks off it. Yes, yeah, some some very wealthy banksters uh, are going to walk away from this thing. 
Right, to create the sixth, uh, sixth largest now in, in the U.S. itself. Um, and again, it's subject to regulatory approval, but you know, that, that probably will make it. No, Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Act in 82, and nobody's enforced it since. It's a, it's a crime, in my opinion. Well, uh, again, the banks are too big to fail means that a, a, a bank can commit a criminal offense, and if you're in the hierarchy of the bank, you can't hurt the bank, so they exempt the criminal activity, yep. which is just bizarre. It's always yep. been bizarre to do that. Agreed. I wanted to mention a story that's being touted uh, about how the speaker is throwing shade on uh, AOC, as, you know, as everyone calls uh, the congresswoman. And uh, I think that's way overrated story. There's just a process there in the House. There'll be a, there'll be a deal on that uh, piece of legislation, the new Green Deal. Okay, great. That's good to know because, uh, you yes. know, I, th- I think uh, Nancy Pelosi is actually a fan of AOC, but who knows? I think so. There you go. Bob Nay. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com, slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Dr. Richard Wolf. His most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. He is the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, a former professor of economics. Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Great to have you with us. So I saw this article by uh, Gavin Davies over on the Financial Times uh, on February 3rd, titled, Why is Germany Flirting with Recession? And uh, he notes uh, Italy has recorded two successive quarters of negative growth. France slipped towards stagnation in December. Uh, They think this is the yellow vests that's causing this. Germany seems to have avoided a technical recession only by a decimal point. They note how the German situation is unusual. And then at the same time, I was reading the Financial Times this morning, and they're talking about how not only has the U.S. Fed under Jay Powell said, okay, we're going to go along with Donald Trump. We're going to stop raising interest rates so that we will be prepared for the next recession. We're going to stop doing that, and we're going to continue to hype the stock market. But now the European Central Bank is doing this. The Chinese Central Bank is doing this. And there was another central bank. I'm sorry, I don't have the article in front of me. Um, what is going on here? Well, I think the basic insight here is that the so-called recovery from the collapse and catastrophe of 2008 is much weaker, much less secure, and much wobblier, let's put it, than had been promised and predicted. Here we are 10 years later with a literally a lost decade for the majority of Americans uh, hanging in a sense over us and the little bit of attempt over the last couple years to begin to compensate for the vast increase of money the collapse of interest rates to below zero all of that trauma of the last 10 years and the damage it did the beginning over the last year and a half to try to correct for that to compensate to offset it was so undermining of the weakness of this recovery that it's now stalled, and not just because Mr. Trump wants to get reelected and needs low 
low interest rates for that. The so-called recovery is very, very weak, even despite the momentous tax cuts for business in December of 2017. So they've reversed the role. And the same is true in Europe because of the fragility of their economy and elsewhere. So we're seeing that much more government stimulus is needed beyond all of the rescues of 2008, all of the bailouts. We still need the government to flood the economy with money, to keep interest rates from going back up to where they have historically been. And it's a sign of the weakness of of global capitalism. There's no nice way to put it. So, uh, you know, I guess the largest frame question here is why do we have central banks? I mean, what is there, since they're the ones who are goosing the economy here, what is, and, and Trump has been saying, for years and years that central banks are the ones who cause recessions by raising interest rates. Why do we have central banks? What is their role? And why is it important to, to regulate interest rates? Why not, why not allow them to, uh, you know, essentially float? Okay, good question. Let's do the thing historically because it always explains it. In every single capitalist country, including the United States, there were periods of time, usually in the early decades of capitalism, when money was not a government activity, when money was created literally by banks who printed it, lent it out, managed the whole business, and profited from doing so. The problem was banks being private enterprises manipulated the money that they could create to make profits for themselves. They didn't worry about, they didn't concern themselves with the larger social effects of what they did. In early America, for example, you had to use one money in one state and a different money issued by a different bank in another state, and you had to exchange the money when you moved from one state to another. All of these things proved eventually to be so destabilizing that the decision was made, we have to go to a central monetary banking system where the money is at least partially, if not totally, controlled by the government because leaving it in private hands is simply too dangerous. It produced runs on the banks. It produced what we used to call panics, but we now uh, domesticate and call them business cycles, but they were real panics. And so the central banking system was an attempt to get that under control. But it left the following problem. The private banks didn't want to be pushed out of the profitable business of making loans and literally creating money, so they cut a deal. Yes, there could be a central bank. Uh, By the way, it's called the central bank in other countries. We call it the Federal Reserve. Why we didn't call it the Bank of the United States is because we had one of those, and it got destroyed with corruption. So the name got a bad uh, name by association back in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So the Federal Reserve is a deal. The government has part of the authority, and the private banking system has another part of the authority. And so why do they do it? Because if you let interest rates float up or down, you're plunging the economy into enormous instability. When interest rates go up, it means the mortgage to carry a home goes up. It means the car payments to get, buy a car, which 98% of cars in America are bought on time. Uh, it means your credit card bill is larger every month. Rising interest rates put a 
kibosh on the economy that most political forces in this society are afraid to allow. So the Federal Reserve is there to kind of control it. I love it only because it gives such a lie to the people who need to pretend that we have a quote-unquote private economy, that everything that happens here is done by the private sector. No, it isn't. The most important thing in the uh, capitalist economy, namely the money, is something we could not manage privately. So we have created these public authorities who, by the way, make all kinds of mistakes, partly out of a real judgment error, partly out of the corruption that they're half in the bag for private bankers. But it looks like it's a better way of managing capitalism's instability than what we had before. So this then raises the question, um, what are the central banks? You said sometimes they make mistakes. What, what is the Fed, the, the U.S.'s central bank? What, what are they doing right and what are they doing wrong right now, well, in your opinion? Well, here's their dilemma. When the economy is going down into the tank, for example, in 2000, when the dot, bob, uh, dot bubble broke, dot-com bubble, or in 2008 when the mortgage crisis hit, their job is to come in and prevent a downturn from becoming a 1930s depression again. And the way they do that is pump money into the economy by dropping interest rates so that banks and others can get their hands on cheap money printed by the government, which in turn you hope they will lend out to consumers to buy more, to businesses to hire more people, etc. In other words, it's a goosing of the economy, and that's their main function. The problem is, if they goose the economy by dropping interest rates and pumping in money, more than needs to be done, well, right now, here's the great fear that lurks in the minds of everybody who pays attention. Over the last 10 years, since the crash of 2008, the Federal Reserve has increased the quantity of money on an unprecedented scale for 10 years. There is a, a, a wash, an amount of money floating around the American capitalist system that everybody worries about. Why? Because if that money were to begin to flood into buying goods, services, real estate, land, things like that, it would drive up the prices because the supply of real things is limited and the quantity of money that might go looking for buying those things is now so huge that we could get an out-of-control inflation. There was no choice, they felt, because the alternative, that's that knife edge again, was to collapse into a depression after 2008. So they did it. But they're worried, and they want to pull money out of the system, lest that inflation get started, because they're very hard to stop once they get going. So the idea of raising interest rates, starting in, in 2017 and 18, was to begin to pull money out of the economy. As, as banks repay the Federal Reserve for money they borrowed, the Federal Reserve literally destroys that money, and you reduce the amount of money circulating. The problem is, when you raise interest rates, homeowners are damaged, 
car companies can't sell cars the way they used to, and they put a lot of pressure not to do it. And Mr. Trump wants to get reelected in 2020, and he can't have an economy slowing down with angry home buyers, angry car buyers blaming him or the Federal Reserve, and most Americans don't keep those things so separate in their minds. Right. So there's a lot of pressure on the Federal Reserve not to pull the money out, even though they have no they ought to. So they're wobbling, and they've now decided to wobble in the following way. They're not going to raise interest rates. Dr. Wolf, we're out out of time. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for being with us today. All right. My pleasure, as usual. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, democracyatwork.info is the website. You can tweet him at uh, Prof. Wolf with two Fs. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom to learn more. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Catherine in Burlington, Vermont. Hey, Catherine, what's up? Hi, Tom. I heard this parable from you in one of your podcasts that sums up inequality, income inequality, I think. May I say it? Sure. Okay, a fly and her eggs were windswept into the streets. One egg fell on a dead cat. The other egg fell in a dusty road. A week later, the two maggots were out walking and ran into each other. The maggot from the dusty road exclaimed, You are so healthy, so robust. How did you do it? The maggot from the dead cat yelled out, Hard work and perseverance. <laughs> okay. I lo- <laughs> Catherine, I don't remember that, but I love it. <laughs> that, that's great. Um, and and, and it's, uh, it's so emblematic. Amen. Boy, what a day. This Green New Deal that is dropping. I mean, this literally, to call it a New Deal is not an exaggeration. We're talking about a massive, extraordinary program that, you know, I think is going to not only revitalize the American democracy and middle class, but will save the planet. Marsha in Englewood, Florida, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Good to talk to you again. Thank you. I really listened to MSNBC. I listened to Lawrence O'Donnell, and he had the absolute best commentary on socialism. He went into how we've almost always been a socialist country, especially since 1901 when the Socialist Workers' Party demanded a 40-hour work week. Even I didn't know that the 40-hour work week was a form of socialism. Yep. And I thought I was up on everything. Well, it's government regulation. And that's what they're calling socialism, Marsha. That is socialism, but the Republicans 
voters don't recognize the 40-hour work week as a part of socialism. And the other thing that he mentioned was that there's good socialism and bad socialism. And he said that 40-hour work week, Social Security, Medicare, you know, is part of socialism. That's the good. The bad socialism is taking a look at the National Football League, which collects taxes, federal taxes, to have money to build these stadiums that different national football leagues demand. And they recently, well, I don't know how recently, that the Rams wanted a new football stadium, and the government said, no, we can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So the billionaire that owns it built his own stadium. What's wrong with that, you know? Right. Instead of collecting from taxpayers to yeah. pay for their no, bad socialism is, is like when football stadiums, let them pay for it themselves. Yeah, bad socialism is like when George W. Bush was able to buy into, I think it was the Texas Rangers, whatever that uh, team is down there in Texas, for a couple hundred thousand bucks. And then uh, they got, they went to the city, and or I, I think it was the city of, uh, of Dallas or Houston, and said, we, wanna, we want you to build a stadium for us. The city put millions, maybe a billion dollars into it. And that so increased the value of the team that George Bush, George W. Bush sold his share for, what, $14 million? I mean, it's been a few years and I'm doing this from memory, but it was, it was a huge return on investment. And that's bad socialism. I'm with you, Marsha. Excellent point. And I'm sorry I didn't catch Lawrence's rant, but apparently he did a pretty good job. <laughs> well, you have a good day. Okay, thanks a lot, Marsha. I appreciate the call, and thank you for watching us on Free Speech TV. What would you like to see? Where, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna go full bore socialist, we're gonna strengthen Social Security, we're gonna extend Medicare to everybody, we're gonna go free college education. Uh, you know, we want to improve our infrastructure, our transit systems. Where should we start? More government research into drugs that might cure AIDS and things. Where do we start? Just did a rant about how we have actually passed a major, major climate change tipping point that we can't we can't walk back from we can't stop it this is coming now it is unstoppable this first step of it which has to do with you know the destruction of major cities in the united states and all around the world you can check this out over at uh, patreon.com tom hartman or for people who support us on youtube as well you can see this Get over to patreon.com slash T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N to check this out. We're talking about how it, uh, prior to a couple of years ago, and this is how, you know, tipping points, you can only see them in the rearview mirror. Prior to a couple of years ago, in the winter, the Arctic and Greenland, the Antarctic and Greenland, would recover some of their ice. Now they're not even doing that. It's just pausing. The melting is just pausing. That's that tipping point. And the, the consequences of this are going to be terrible. Check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Harbin. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and Richard in Evanston, Illinois. Hey, Richard, thanks for listening to Chicago's Progressive Talk. What's on your mind today? Yeah, I had the mute on before. I wanted to add to the pension fund topic um, um, and uh, the change from being a protect uh, a liability to an asset. Mm-hmm. The federal government, you missed something. I, don't, I, mean, <laughs> I would have missed it, too. The federal government, via the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, assumes underfunded pension plans. Uh, January 18th, it just took on $1.4 billion from the Sears uh, deal. The benefits are reduced. 
uh, it is um, and that's another example of corporate welfare facilitates these pension funds. And here in Chicago, Sam Zell bought the Sun-Times. He took the pension fund. There was a lawsuit. The court said he could do it. It lost all their money. And the taxpayers assumed uh, Sam Zell's uh, burden, you know. So right. uh, the, sure, the, 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 the rich really think government's awful, don't they? When you know, did this they, when did this it. happen, Rich? When did this, uh, Richard, when did this change happen that, that if a pension fund goes down, we all pick up the balance? Does that go back uh, to the beginning? I, the number. I think it was like 74. It was called the IRSA Act, I think. It's the right. B, you can go online and look at the federal, it's the BG. The was, that, was, was there a correlation between that and, and this idea of booking pension money as assets rather than liabilities, or am I wrong on that? I can't tell you that offhand, but it is something that's been around. It might have been around longer. I'm not sure. You know, it's a way to protect people, you know, sure. uh, and it's underfunded, of course, and, it, and, it, and Sears, again, just now got that. I don't know that they were exactly dovetailed, but it's, um, you know, it's just another handout. You know, yeah. Sam Zeld ruined a company as an idiot, you know. Also, I was going to tell you, uh, Bork, I mentioned, I think, in a book called Bloodsport uh, about his con- contribution to uh, pension, uh, to uh, um the, um, the topic you were talking about. Antitrust. You were, guys were going. Yeah. Yeah. And because uh, Westboro was about uh, mergers and acquisitions. And I'm going to recommend another, bo- recommend another book called Crash. It's about the, the 2007 by, uh, recent book by T O O Z E. Fascinating. It mm-hmm. uh, debunks the nonsense that the uh, giving poor people uh, mortgages caused it. It, it, uh, it. I believe it totally debunks that. Yeah. Good. I'll have to look for those. Richard, thank you yeah, very much. It's great stuff. I appreciate it. Sharice in Polsbo, Washington. Hey, Sharice, what's up? Hi. If I could, um, I, there are eight sentences that I believe are the, the basis for all that. All It's like the soil that all socialism should rise out of. And, and if we all agree that these are basic. Okay, you have a half a minute if you want to get through them. Okay, really quick. The right to useful and remunerative job in industries and shops and farms or mines of the nation. The right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. The right of every farmer to raise and sell his product at a return that will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies and home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to receive and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. Yeah, this is FDR's second new deal, Sharice. Yeah, second bill of rights. Second or second bill of rights. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Thank you. Very well said. And quickly, I appreciate that. Sharice, thank you so much. And thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. Thanks so much for being with us today. So, uh, you know, every day, it seems there's something new that we can learn, some fascinating new little piece of how America works and how we can put things together in this democracy to make this a better country for all of us, not just the billionaires. Thanks so much for being with us. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 